What are you doing, Jojo? Okay, go, go, go.
Brainwash you, I mean. Relaxing down into your seat, to the base of your body, center of gravity, connect with the center of gravity in your body. And just shift gradually. Into the world of meditation. And then straighten up even further. Pushing upward till the bones crack and relax a little bit. Open out your awareness first in front, the light space in the room and go out to the walls in front of you. Connect that to the floor below you. And then blanket the walls on the sides, starting with the right hand side and then the left hand side with your awareness. And then come behind you and fill in all that space behind you with awareness. All the way up to the ceiling. Filling the whole room with your awareness. Not getting tense in the posture and the breath or the mind. Just relaxing there in that cube of awareness around you. And then come back from the edges of the room and look at yourself sitting in the middle or the side of the room, wherever. Notice yourself sitting in this room. See your body. Sense where your mind is. Look in your eyes. And then just shift into the technique. Connecting with the breath. Breathing out, emphasizing the out-breath. Exploring the space. Still having a sense of your posture here. 
and then coming back for the next out breath. Noticing thoughts as they appear, movement, any movement of mind as it appears, meeting it with awareness, labeling, and letting it go. Remembering to open the gaze to the full extent of the space of your eyeballs or eyelid openings. And just relax in that alert, wide open, awake state of watchfulness, knowing what's going on mindful of the breath. In a light sense of watchfulness with a slight expectation. And just keep repeating that. Hi, good evening again, welcome, all that. Let's see. This is class eight, right? The hum is pretty loud this evening, Derek. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, class eight. Is that what we got tonight? What does it say in this package in front of me? Since you guys are deep yes, eight. 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 <laughs> Forgive me a second. I neglected to uh, find it. Let's see. There were two parts to it. Did anyone read the optional stuff? Was that interesting?
guys are being very quiet tonight. Okay, sorry to keep you waiting. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just keeping you on your toes here, flipping around materials on the screen, huh? Hey, so tonight we dive into uh, the, the most uh, complex section of the presentation. So... Um, I'm sure you found it. Uh, I found it very complex. All the different categories and schemes and how they fit or don't into each other. And it's a little bit uh, endlessly uh, repetitive and convoluted. I apologize for them, for it, for that. And <clears throat> it's good to know that this class is the only class that'll have that level of convolutedness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I won't go in depth into the convolutedness. Uh, in fact, I want to start with Rimshay's presentation to, to ease us in and expand our minds, relax you, get you to like be unsuspecting and trust me, and then I'll go for the jugular. Right? Okay, so... Uh, we're starting with last week's readings, which was uh, seven. And there were three readings that I didn't get to. And I'm going to save two for next week. I hope you'll remember. And we're going to do this guy, Systems of uh, Vipassana. which is on page 30 of the class seven, Systems of Vipassana. So this is from the Profound Treasury, volume one. Categories of Vipassana. To understand Buddha Dharma, a person must meditate under the guidance of a teacher and be properly trained in Vipassana. Here he's following the presentation in the text from last week of uh, John Gilcontrol's Treasury of Knowledge that says talks about the prerequisites. Without an understanding of Vipassana, such discoveries as the Four Noble Truths through egolessness cannot be completely comprehended or experienced. So the reason, the necessity for Vipassana. It's divided into various categories. And we went through four categories last week. We went through uh, the common system related to the absorptions of the coarse and, and subtle um, afflictions or obstacles to uh, samadhi. 
And then there was the system of the uh, Shravakas and the Pratyeka Buddhas focused on the Four Noble Truths. And then there was the system of Vipassana of the Mahayana focused on emptiness. And then there was the system of uh, emptiness endowed with bliss from the Mantrayana or Vajrayana tradition. So tonight here we have uh, some more categories divided into lower and higher Vipassana. Lower Vipassana is a shamatha type of Vipassana based purely on concentration. He's talking about type number one from last week relating to the coarse and peaceful aspects of the, the states of mind of the absorptions. And then higher Vipassana is more inspirational based on insights such as the Four Noble Truths. In another system, Vipassana is divided into two aspects, discriminating awareness and, um, <clears throat> and immovability. Uh, we saw that uh, last week at the end, he says there's there's also, Kongshul uh, said there's also a division into two, fluctuating or analytical Vipassana, which is here, Rinpoche is calling it discriminating awareness, and then non-fluctuating, non-analytical or genuine Vipassana and immovability. And, and uh, Kongshul Rinpoche affiliated those two with path Vipassana was discriminating awareness, analytical fluctuating and uh, fruition Vipassana is immovability, non-fluctuating, non-analytical. Discriminating awareness. The first of those is the ability to see clearly and through that clarity develop definite mindfulness practice. Immovability is the kind of absorption in which awareness is constantly present and stable and cannot move or shift. Different degrees of immovability happen in the various stages of Vipassana. Which is an interesting statement that there's stages. So we'll come to that next week, uh, week after next. Immovability is a powerful experience based on the confidence that you found the correct path, and therefore you cannot forget it. Presumably also meaning you, you ha cannot forget the path as well as cannot forget like what you're doing in meditation or outside of it for that matter. You fully realize that there's no other practice than this, this being immovable awareness. You've been converted to Vipassana and you have faith and trust in it. Skip a little section in this excerpt. Unless you develop Vipassana and realize the importance of wakefulness, you'll have only a very distant view of Vajrayana or even higher levels of Mahayana. It's necessary to have that kind of basic training <clears throat> and growth. So Vipassana experience and practice is absolutely necessary for a person who follows the Buddhist path and really wants to understand the Dharma, both intellectually and intuitively. And so by this, he's, he's uh, using terms that are normally translated as conceptually and non-conceptually. Vipassana practice is necessary. So he's implying there's conceptual Vipassana and non-conceptual Vipassana, intuitive. You have to make an acquaintance with yourself. You have to meet yourself to know who you are and what you are. And we saw this before where he says, uh, in order to uh, um, progress on the path of egolessness, you first need to understand the ego. You need to understand the self, what the self is and the watcher and what this experience of meanness is. Without Vipassana experience, you don't have any idea of who you are, what you are, how you are, why you are at all. 
who, what, where. He left out where. So it's very important and absolutely necessary to respect the need for Vipassana. Okay, got it. So now uh, we come back to this week. Sounds of paper rustling. And uh, I'm going to start with Rimshay. Probably relieved at that. That's the optionals. Here's the essentials uh, on page 17. Oh, I'm sorry, there's one other. First, in the uh, optionals, it's the conclusion to the pterodactyl presentation, which is on page 10. Okay, so on page 10, this is the conclusion to Rinpoche going through the four types of Vipassana, the terminology of types and categories and so forth, levels, is not that precise. But anyway, we had the four, you have the four thises and the three thats and the six those, and the, at least the numbers are different. Not, we don't have like the four of these and the four of those and the four of them. Anyway, we're at the conclusion of the four, and he says, when you practice shamatha, you're still involved with effort or hard work. Vipassana is somewhat effortless, but it's more watchful. So in a sense, you could say it takes more effort. It takes like a, in other places, he talks about that there being two types of effort. One is, one is more of like a long-term, continuous, sort of underlying effort, which I think is the extension of that quality that we saw in shamatha of conscientiousness. That effort to always be present, and aware and that has to always be going on whereas uh, shamatha or mindfulness takes more of like a focused uh, sporadic type of effort so in this type of effort we're not allowing any gaps in our awareness none whatsoever when you practice mindfulness you concentrate on one particular area and you would stop concentrating on that you relax so there's an on and off quality in mindfulness Whereas awareness is like a blanket approach. I think I heard that term earlier somewhere today or this evening, blanketing awareness. Anyway, um, that relaxation is looked at by awareness. It's a pretty odd thing to say that we're looking at the relaxation. But I think what he's saying, and he's, he'll say it in many places, is that in, in Vipassana, with awareness, we're looking at our experience, our mind, um, the quality of our experience of our mind. Whereas in, in shamatha and mindfulness, we're looking more at the contents. However, that relaxation is looked at by awareness. So the pinpoint from shamatha, as well as the sense of general radiation is covered completely, which is through awareness, Vipassana. Our teachers have taught us that it's necessary to conquer both undisciplined mind and individualistic mind. Undisciplined mind, mind that's constantly distracted and obsessed with preoccupation, 
i.e. example number one, my mind, is conquered by shamatha practice. Individualistic mind is conquered by vipassana. So my mind that thinks I am is conquered by vipassana. Vipassana is based on dealing with the ego, the distant territory of ego, as well as its more immediate territory. Distant, immediate, uh, not totally clear sort of impression of what that might be. We're trying to attack our ego. We mock it. We conquer it. We invade it. We subjugate it. Pretty ruthless language with the ego. Individualism or ego means that which is not seen as a working basis for the general atmosphere of awareness. It's an interesting way to define ego as in a negative. It's everything that's not helpful for awareness. Every time we get distracted from awareness, that's ego. Everything that distracts us from awareness is ego. Wandering mind, confusion, the inability to discipline oneself. All of those are factors that derive from the fundamental principle ego. What is the root? Why do we practice Vipassana? We understand that it will be helpful. Why? If we approach practice in the style of mental gymnastics, like what are we going to get out of it? It's like expecting that if we do a lot of exercise, we'll get in shape. What are we getting in shape for? Why are we doing this all at all in the name of heaven and earth? It has to do with ego. So you continue sitting and working with your basic shamatha discipline. As you do that, sorry, you could add a little bit of Vipassana awareness. Get just the right recipe. In fact, you could practice Vipassana during all your waking hours while you're taking a shower, brushing your hair, pressing your clothes, preparing a cup of tea. It would be helpful. Just a suggestion. Be helpful to practice Vipassana. So that blanket approach of awareness can be happening all the time. Once you understand it, once you come into it in meditation practice, you have the ability to connect to it all the time. Okay, so now let's go back to uh, where I was earlier. In the, what I call the main set of readings, essential readings here. And this is page 17 of that situation. And uh, so this is a talk from 1973 seminary, the Hinayana Mahayana's talk eight. And he's uh, he's gone through the four foundations of mindfulness. And um, he's gone through shamatha. And now he's talking about uh, Vipassana. It's a pretty amazing talk. And uh, my friend here, Mary Beth, helped me a number of years ago go through and compare what are in the transcripts and what's in the profound treasury and what's like missing, like what's in the transcripts that's not that well represented. And, and this talk stood out, I think, if I remember correctly. So I thank you, Mary Beth, for this awesome talk. Definition. The next subject is Vipassana, translated as insight. Here's the Tibetan word. And he seems to be really into people getting the terminology, so you might as well give that a try. Uh, LH is a tongue twister for most of, most of us. It's pronounced as if it's HL. Lok. Lok tong. Tibetan is monosyllabic. Lok is perfect or clear. Tong is seen, so clear seen. It's regarded as a meditative practice or a contemplative practice. 
So there are these two types of Lokchong. One is called Jegong. J is uh, Tibetan for analysis or analytical, dividing up, separating. He's affiliating this, I believe, with, oh, here we go, which means contemplating on a certain aspect of the meaning of reality and meditating upon it. So that's the contemplative practice. The other type is called joke gom. And the G is pronounced like a K, joke gom, which means simply rest and meditating on the abstract or intuitive level. So there are two types of meditations particularly involved with Loktong. One is more contemplatively oriented and the other is more pure meditatively oriented. And then there's this uh, gloss, you know, like a, a standard definition for the term or a way that it's used. Loktong Dakme Tokbe Sherab. And he goes through it and it means knowledge of egoless understanding which in more normal English English is the knowledge um, um, the knowledge that understands egolessness. Sorry, I blanked out for a second there, which is equated with the idea of discriminating awareness wisdom. Whenever we begin with the idea of Lakshang or Apashana, there's a sense that we're including intellectual as well as intuitive knowledge, conceptual, non-conceptual knowledge in the teaching, bringing them, them together. So Lakshang is regarded as extremely important. The Vipassana practice is not purely sitting practice, sitting meditation practice alone. It has the scope of pre-prajna. We could say that infant or embryonic prajna is Lakshang. And so he's implying in there that outside of meditation study that we do, sharpening of prajna, however it's done, whether it's formally just like studying the Dharma or whether, or whether we're trying to understand the Dharma as we go about our lives, that's prajna and that's lakchong, vipassana. Another definition for lakchong is it's the flame that burns the fuel of conceptual ego mind. This is a famous uh, phrase used by the Buddha in a famous sutra where he describes uh, the, the practice of Vipassana. And the idea is that uh, the flame is produced by the rubbing together of different concepts. And in that process, the concepts is, themselves are all burned up. So we use conceptual mind to burn up conceptual mind. It dissolves in the fire. It's, you know, just like kindling. You start the fire with the wood and the kindling and everything's gone at the end. Then he gives an interesting little interlude. Let me give you some guidelines how to relate with these things. Each time we t discuss a particular topic or issue, uh, there's the definition is given in terms of an example imagery. And from there, there are different cat categories of different types of subjects that contain different qualities, different attributes. So it's like there's the there's the example or the image, and then from there there's a number of other different categories basically of the topic. So the definition of lakchong is that which burns the ego mind. That's the basic statement 
That's the image, the example. Therefore, it would be a misunderstanding to regard Vipassana as a technique in meditation practice after shamatha alone. So it's not restricted to being on the cushion. Something more than that. It's been said that Lakshana is that which brings together knowledge and meditative state of mind, prajna and samadhi. Clear thinking and complete awareness. So far, we've discussed the Vipassana aspect of the practice of meditation. Sorry, when we have any kind of awareness that we practice is more mindfulness than awareness. A little bit of an implication that he's been hinting around Vipassana, but when he has been, it's been mostly in the sense of uh, really more mindfulness than awareness. It's been a sort of incipient Vipassana. And we saw that last week or two, over the last week or two where he talks about Vipassana basically as Sheshan, as clear knowing. The sense of being there, the sense of bare attention to what's happening psychologically, physically, emotionally, whatever, fully being there. All those, those are all mindfulness practice. But from the Vipassana practice onward, any kind of meditative experience or concentration that we might use is regarded as awareness practice, being aware rather than mindful. So there's a focus on that second quality of shamatha, of awareness, and expanding that. The traditional definition of mindfulness, he says, absolute, is like a burning candle uninterrupted by wind, covered by a glass. There's a sense of stillness and ongoing accuracy. Everything's noted and so forth. Everything's recycled, so to speak. It's a little bit of an odd phrase, recycled. Practitioner is not looking for external material to reinforce the effort or the methods that one applies to the practice. Rather than getting a supply from the outside, it's self-contained. So we're not like interested in learning other things as we're practicing shamatha. We're just, we have everything we need right with our nose and our body and our eyes and so forth. Therefore, it's like a candle burning undisturbed by the wind, self-contained. It's being mindful and relating with eight types of consciousness, relating with our mind, the different aspects of mind precisely. In the case of Lakhtong, it's slightly more adventurous because now we begin to include the intellectual aspect in our psychological makeup. We look at how the mind works. What is mind and what does mind do? the clear scene begins to bring about a sense of relationship. How does the mind relate with objects, with itself? The intellectual messenger, the conceptualizer, begins to become active and develop discriminating awareness. So Vipassana becomes, the, the, in Vipassana, the conceptualizer becomes active. So here it's definitely talking about more of the uh, conceptual, analytical type of Vipassana. We should be careful about the particular term or idea of discriminating. So it's going to clarify what he means by that. It's not like a heavy duty um, uh, mental activity. And it's not a discrimination in the sense of rejecting certain things like racial discrimination, uh, which is some idea of re rejecting what is seen or thought about to be inferior and so forth. In this case, when we talk about discriminating, it means that everything is seen precisely and clearly and nothing is rejected. Presumably meaning that things are, are seen as, as different from each other, discriminating one thing from another, one aspect, 
one object, one experience from another. Everything is included in that process, but not in the vague, happy-go-lucky-together way, the ordinary notion of it, ecumenical. So this is not like everything is one sort of thing. Everything is included in that discriminated awareness on its own method. Uh, sorry, merit. You know, sort for what it is. Not as not as trying to like see the sameness in things, but actually seeing the, the separateness of things, the, the difference in things. It gives different options for what that difference might be. Everything is seen clearly as it is, but at the same time, they have their names, their categories and concepts. Everything's placed very clearly and fully and things become very precise. This is definitely a conceptual process. He's described, this is why the idea of bringing together Prajna and Samadhi is a characteristic of Lakto. So on the basis of the Samadhi of Shamatha, we give rise to Prajna, discriminating awareness. So the example of Lakto is the flame burning fuel, the wood, the knowledge and the clarity burning the fuel of ego mind. And the characteristic is the combination of knowledge and the meditative state. How come there is a meditative state if the whole thing is entirely based on the discrimination awareness principle, which is busy, busy labeling and trying to pinpoint things? He's clearly talking about analytical type of vipassana here, an active type of vipassana. The basic notion of the meditative, you know, so he's saying, how can it be meditation if there's all this activity going on? that's busy discriminating awareness or Vipassana discriminating awareness is labeling and pinpointing very much an active Vipassana. The basic notion of the meditative state of Lakton is a sense of vastness, a sense of spaciousness because you no longer have to be mindful, but you can be aware of so seeing the totality, everything. So we could say that mindfulness is a journey from the outskirts to the central point. So it's talking about how the, the feeling of the practice, when you practice shamatha initially, it's like your mind is all over the place. And gradually you collect your mind together into being in your body, in the center of your sphere of awareness, your sphere of mindfulness, I should say, sorry. In mindfulness practices, you find mental activities, whatever, and you begin to note the contents, the mental contents being active. And then you focus your attention and you begin to develop a sense of well-being by observing, seeing things as they are in their own light. And that is the journey and well-being we went through. That's one of the foundations of mindfulness, which is how he presents the progression of shamatha, the journey. However, in the case of awareness, the awareness practice of Lakhtong, it is direct in the sense that it does not take a journey or preparation to find the subject matter. It's like uh, it's like the speed of light versus the speed of sound. You know, the speed of sound takes a while to transmit, but speed of light is much faster. It's like as soon as you notice the mind is distracted or has gone to something else, you're there with it, and and there there's no sense of having to come back from distraction. You're immediately clear because you have a, a blanket approach of awareness. So you've never left. You never went anywhere when you when there was a distraction. You were you were still aware the whole time you were distracted. That perception itself is the experience of locked home. We could quite uh, sorry you just perceive things simply directly, 
whether you could see mental contents or anything else. Um, let's see. There's no effort into it. You're instantly present. We could quite safely say quite safely, as been said by Taranata and all the great teachers who have experienced Lakhtong. And uh, he mentions Taranata. That's pretty cool. I have to check out what, what he had to say on Vipassana. That Lakhtong is like riding an elephant. You think you're riding an elephant, but in fact, the elephant's carrying you. You know, you think you have some say in the matter. And like maybe the elephant notices you sitting on its back because you weigh a lot. And, the, you know, the elephant's just doing its thing and happens to have this little bug on top that maybe is, you know, like a mosquito every once in a while. So there's a sense of lock tone coming upon you rather than you working towards it. The sense that when you relax and open, it comes to you. Vipassana comes towards you. It's like a wave or a blanket or mist is, is also one of the way he's, ways he describes it. It's like uh, when there's a, a thick mist and it just like comes to it, envelopes you. It's not like you have to go towards it. It doesn't need cooking up. Zhong Kongchul and the other great teachers of the Kogu Nyingma lineage is always trying to make a point of the superiority and importance of Lakjong. It's uh, how, sorry, this experience that sows the seeds of the highest intelligence in our state of mind, transcendent wisdom. Uh, prajna. It awakens the intelligence to realize the little in, literal interpretation of the Dharma is no longer important. The real interpretation of the Dharma becomes more important. And he's referring here to this scheme of definitive and uh, uh, provisional teachings of the Buddha, the way of understanding the teachings of the Buddha. Instead of being fixated on the literal meaning of words in the Buddha's teachings, we understand the, the, the profound overall implication. The Dharma is not purely technical and doctrinal anymore. One begins to realize that the essence of Dharma can be felt rather than simplistically being the, the uh, activity or result of memorizing ideas and categories. So from that point of view, Lakhtong is that which awakens the intuitive understanding of the practice of the teaching. Without Lakhtong, without Vipassana practice, there's no way that we could prepare ourselves to comprehend the subtleties of the teachings. So Lakhtong goes from Hinayana up to Mahayati, the highest level of Vajrayana. That's an extremely important starting point for the development of wisdom, discriminating awareness, wisdom. Now, I'm going to skip this section, and we'll come back to it later. He goes through one of the schemes, the six categories, and uh, he, adds, he adds a category and comes up with seven somehow, which is not an uncommon thing that he does. We saw that in the seven categories of a Dharmic person, he had eight. Um, I think Andrew has a question. Oh, thanks so much. I'm like oblivious here because you guys are over on this side here. Andrew, go for it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I want to interrupt. You know what's interesting about that, that comment? I mean, he mentions, um, oh, shoot, let me just find it real quick. Oh, like, as it's been said by Taranata, the, I mean, he references the Pashna as being like, not like a, like a common practice. I mean, for how commonly we speak of 
Shamsa and Vipassana, I mean, he really just now referred to it as being like an elevated um, or like a more advanced experience or teaching, right? Like, am I correct in understanding that? I mean, he really gave totally, that. totally. I mean, it's kind of like we throw that word around, but he's kind of like Ugh, easy. Like, that's not that you know, the elevated thing right there. You're totally right on, and I, I, I don't want to like make a big deal out of it, but we talk very lightly about oh, I, I do Vipassana practice. And uh, to do Vipassana practice is, is a very advanced activity. Yeah, that's what I took Definitely. out of that, which is like, seems like a really like kind of for how much he talks about and describes it, you just pulled it back real quick um, just to kind of check that. Yeah, yeah, he pulled it back. I like that. You know, so, so what he's doing, it, it, as far as I can tell, um, is that he's presented Vipassana basically in a couple of, at least a couple of different ways. One is he presents it as this quality of the uh, deepening of the uh, Shashan experience of shamatha, the mind, the, the knowing quality, the awareness quality. And he's sort of using that as a way to lead us along in our practice by calling that Vipassana. And then he's revealing that really there's this other Vipassana that's much more advanced. Yeah, right. It's a bit confusing, but, you know, catching on to the same thing, right? It's kind of like, wait, what was he talking about before? Is that Vipassana as well? Or, you know, that's a good description. Thank yeah. you. Um, we'll, we'll, well, we'll see at some points. And I think we've seen a little bit that that Vipassana of the uh, quality of the knowing quality that arises from Shamatha that he uh, is affiliating Vipassana with can also be identical to the result type of Vipassana that's non-fluctuating, non-analytical. Cool. So um, it, it's, it's a little bit of the Mahamudra tradition where if, if you have certain conditions present, you can sort of make this leap from the Shashan quality of Shamatha to a sort of advanced level of Vipassana. But it's pretty much understood that to be able to make that leap, you have to have gone through the more rudimentary stages of Vipassana, the more conceptual, analytical type of Vipassana. That's very interesting. And that's what actually the different schemes, there's the four of this, the three of this, and then the six of those, those schemes are presenting um, different ways of um, going through the, the steps of analytical meditation so that you then come to the resultant Vipassana of non-analytical Vipassana of stillness. And, and uh, uh, there's actually contained within those schemes the sort of uh, recipe or the instruction of how to sort of cut to the chase so to speak wow that's cool thank you so then let's go on approaching it i suppose we could fully discuss the techniques of locked home tomorrow today i'd like to go through it briefly according to maitripa oh this is misspelled it should have an i m a i tripa uh, who was a teacher of Marpa. So Marpa had two main teachers. We're 
we're probably most uh, familiar with a gentleman named, uh, let's see, what was his name? Oh, anybody? No, uh, Naropa, Naropa, Naropa. <laughs> That's it. There's a university named it. So Naropa. And then the other one was Maitripa. And uh, Maitripa is famous for having taught Marpa the uh, Mahamudra tradition of Saraha. So according to Maitripa, if a person is able to hold its discriminating mind in its own place, you know, if you can actually figure out what the place of your mind is and hold it there, that is the perfection of Lakshong. That's to say there's no suspicion as to a person's involvement in Lakshong ex experience. <laughs> That's a little unclear. The, uh, one, one is completely satisfied and feels completely at home with Lakshong experience or the possibilities of it. He backs up a little bit. That person has no tendency to shop around for other techniques anymore. There's a certainty that you know that you're meditating correctly. You know that you've understood what the point of meditation is in terms of stabilizing and then experiencing the sense of ego or self and undermining it, letting it go. When a person's mind is clearly set on that discriminating awareness wisdom, then one is a good student of Lakshan. If we look clearly, there's a contradiction there. Oh, this is very cool, this section. We're supposed to develop the highly discriminating, very powerful mind of Lakshan, i.e. analytical, active. But at the same time, we're not supposed to have any doubt, none whatsoever. In other words, he's sort of affiliating doubt with the activity of mind. And he's sort of saying at the same time, we're supposed to be resting in a non-fluctuating state. We could say there's something wrong there, that you're not supposed to have any doubt, but at the same time, you're supposed to have discriminating awareness, wisdom. So you're applying your wisdom because you haven't fully understood, so you have some doubt. Seemingly, there's a contradiction, but actually there's none. In fact, there, it is complementary. The contradiction only comes if we relate with Lao Chong as something which brings a result or a reward of some kind. As long as there's a notion of getting something out of it by practicing it, then it ceases to become the practice of discriminating wisdom. There's, you know, up until enlightenment, I imagine there's this sense that, oh, if I understand what the ego is, then I'll be able to experience egolessness. So we're trying, we keep trying to get egolessness out of our mind, out of doing our meditation. We're not we are not discriminating with the sharpness of our intellect anymore if we're trying to get something out of it. We're only concerned with, if I practice, I will, will I get a reward? And that's non-discriminating neurosis. It's neurosis, and it's non-discriminating. <laughs> it's, um, it's not intelligent. In fact, we're already bogged down into the usual samsaric pat pattern, so you can't say you're being very clever and smart anymore now, can you? The attitude of a long-term practitioner is not to have a goal. You know, so to some extent, he's he's given this this long talk where he's presented this uh, very advanced experience of a passion. Now he's trying to like undercut people's ambitions of like wanting to achieve this, you know, exalted experience. Um, when you let's see, not to have a goal. When you don't have any notion of a goal, then you have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. So on the one hand, it's like he's, he's sort of uh, 
trying to get us to let go of the goal orientation that that he just built up a little bit a while ago. But on the other hand, he's actually giving meditation instruction. So on the spot of like of uh you know when when we're practicing meditation are we trying to experience something when you don't have any notion of goal then there's nothing to lose and gain the only thing is that the mental plays the intellectual plays happening in your state of mind are colorful and provocative if you're not trying to get anything out of them or go anywhere you begin to appreciate the displays of mind without being disturbed by them. That seems to be the point. The sense of trust and faith is in you in some sense in individuals. You have trust in your basic state of wakefulness. If you give up the notion of goal and achievement, then one develops discriminating wisdom and faith or trust or confidence instantaneously. Usually when we talk about faith, ordinary blind faith, we talk in terms of getting a reward. I have faith in you, so will you save me? But if there's no need for a reward, but simply go and practice, it doesn't need any confirmation anymore. Therefore, Vipassana practitioners have developed the highest form of devotion and faith because there's, they're not looking to get at it, anything as the result of it. Derek? Yes, ma'am. This <laughs> reminds me a little bit of... Um sort of beginner's mind. Yeah, this part, yeah, of not yeah. trying to get anywhere. Yeah, the idea that you just, uh, the idea, I remember, in fact, when I remember when I first started at Shambhala, um, meditating and saw this colorful display, and it was like, wow. <laughs> and, and I've lost that sense. Yeah, I'm jaded by your mind. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of interesting that, you know, um, you do get kind of goal-oriented once you start, you know, sort of... Getting uh, into it, yeah. Yeah, and then to come Maybe back you have to, to this... you have to switch minds with somebody else, so you'll have some new <laughs> color to be... to, to experience. Anybody, any volunteers? <laughs> Hey, so the first level of, of a Pashna practice is called the practice of an infant. Talk about beginner's mind. We're back to our baby stage of infancy. That's, that is the awareness technique, which we probably should discuss tomorrow. It's so funny the way he talks about what he should talk about. Practice of the infant is at the level of the first path of the path of accumulation. Now he shifts into some sort of jargon, some scheme that's with more scholastic or scholarly presentation of Buddhism of there being these five paths, stages to enlightenment. So the infant level is on the first path, which is called the path of accumulation. And we begin from there. So uh, he explains what that means, that we're just about to commit ourselves into our own intellect, if that was helpful. He no longer throws away we no longer throw away our intellect as being an obstacle to the path. We begin to make a relationship with intellect for the first time. When we do shamatha, we basically disregard our intellect. And now we come back. We're like, oh, 
ah, I put this over there. I get it out of the way, this, this tool, because it was a problem initially. But now maybe it's coming useful for banging in some nails or something. Having gone through the Shamatha experience of precision and well-being, the two main qualities he likes to mention, the sense of mindfulness together, and so forth. We could discuss that tomorrow. What we've discussed today includes the idea of the practice of the infant and also the higher practice of developing discriminating wisdom. And the general notion is that starting out with Pashtun experience is definitely a much bigger step than that of Shamatha. It's much closer to the basic sanity of Buddhism in a general spiritual practice. That is definitely clearly stating that now we've gone through our basic mental training. You've been through boot camp. You're ready to launch yourselves into the next era of cutting through ego. So Vipassana is a very powerful statement of the Buddhist teachings. So in the, in the Q&A, we have this. Uh, he says, I think actually Lokchong traditionally is supposed to operate on the level of the seventh. And I left out, uh, I should have put in consciousness. I cut out the question. So it's talking about this, the different consciousnesses of the eight. And he says, it happens on the seventh consciousnesses. We use our ego mind, that image of using concept to burn up concepts. So we use ego to, to dissolve itself. And that's why it's very powerful. It uses ego against itself. It cuts the underlying confused dualistic notions, discriminating notions, and introduces very clear and superior dualistic notions. Dualistic notions. The paths of accumulation at the ordinary person's level before we become RMs. That's like from Game of Thrones or something. What are RMs? It has three categories I'm sure you've read. So he maps out this path in an interesting way, not seen, wrongly seen, and partially seen. And all of those are included in the path of accumulation. So let's see. The main point is that he's saying this is the seventh consciousness level. Here he calls it the unconsciousness. Ego is sort of unconscious from some point of view. The sense consciousness is what you work with in the shamatha practice and mindfulness is limited. It has the quality of waiting for something. It involves very subtle expectation. Awareness is a one-shot deal. It doesn't have to wait for anything, but it's being at that point on the spot. It's expect, it is expectation, the sense of confirmation. The journey that you take in your mental development or psychological de development during your practice is very fast. And the waiting as well as the getting what you want are fast, but there's still some kind of conditional thing happening. So he, he shifts back and forth in his language from like very literal language up above to this very uh, evocative, wonderful little presentation. One shot deal, awareness. And let's see, maybe we should all, uh, let's see. So now let's go back to um, Drum Control. See what he has to say about this in this section of the text on Vipassana. So the classifications. And uh, I'm going to skip the root verse since it's repeated so many times and clearly in the commentary. Uh, the commentary section of his text. 
This is what is mainly taught here. Here meaning in the Mahayana. He's already said, I'm going to focus on the Mahayana practice of Vipassana. So here, it's not the Vipassana at the high levels and paths, which is mainly taught here, but Vipassana be, to be practiced by ordinary people, presumably somewhat like us. There are three main types of classifications. There's the four, the three, the six. First, and these, these get very convoluted, and I'm going to try to like cut to the, to the chase with them. Uh, so I'll only go through a couple of these. There were a number of presentations that were somewhat dis, uh, duplication, but had different nuances. First, according to this sutra, which we've seen referenced before, unraveling the thought. There's a classification known as the four types of Vipassana, investigating the essence. And these are discriminating and fully discriminating, each of which is divided into thorough examination and analyzing. So here, the presentation is on these two main types of meditation, and each of them has two stages. Thoroughly examining is the first stage of each of them, and then analyzing is the secondary stage of each of them. Discriminating involves focusing on the varieties of phenomena. So in the, the traditional Buddhist way of understanding wisdom, which is, uh, pervades all of Mahayana Buddhism, and it's, and it's uh, understood as a given in, in a presentation like this, is that wisdom has two purviews, two ranges for its activity. There's the wisdom that understands the varieties of phenomena, meaning the interdependent, um, momentary, essenceless nature of phenomena, of all the different types of phenomena, um, with an emphasis on the different categories of phenomena. There's, there's uh, the sense objects and the sense bases and the sense consciousnesses of the six types. There's the five skandhas, all these different classifications of the varieties of phenomena. So discriminating involves focusing on the varieties of phenomena. The second uh, realm or domain for wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is on the true nature of phenomena. So I screwed up a little bit. Uh, the varieties of phenomena is not on their uh, momentary, effervescent, or essenceless nature. That's the mode of being. Their mode of being of phenomena is their emptiness. The varieties of phenomena is all the different aspects of the uh, of the phenomenal appearance: skandhas, ayatanas, datus, senses, and so forth. So there's those two range realms. The variety of phenomena is the relative world, appearance, beings, things, this and that, and the mode of being. As emptiness, emptiness of self of persons, emptiness of self of phenomena. That's the true mode of being. So wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is the under, perfect understanding of both those realms, the relative world and the ultimate world. So discriminating focuses on 
the relative world. The variety is a phenomenon. Fully discriminated involves focusing on the mode of being, the true nature, emptiness, realizing the selflessness of persons and phenomena, and examining and analyzing our coarse and subtle aspect of each. So there's two levels to each. Discriminating the right as if the relative world has a has a coarse level and a subtle level, and then fully discriminating the the ways that things are empty has a coarse and a subtle aspect. So that's pretty straightforward, right? There's the relative world and the absolute world. They both have like a, a level one and a level two a surface and a deeper level. The four the four types of Vipassana, investigating the essence. And that turns out to be basically the main scheme, and the other schemes sort of revolve around this. Okay, and, and so this is a, clearly a description of analytical Vipassana. The way of examining, examining, that's a good one, examining is described in that sutra as fully Examining, definitely examining, fully understanding, closely understanding. And this also applies to analyzing. So because Buddhists love just like to make lists upon lists, they expand those four categories to 16. If, you know, if you give each of them, if you apply each four against each of the four, and it, not, not, not that important anyway. And he uh, uh, gives another source that says the same thing. And there's a threefold classification of Vipassana, known as the three gateways. So first was the four types investigating the essence, the essence of the relative and the ultimate. And then there's the three types of Vipassana, the three gateways of Vipassana. Gateways imply like they're the entryway into something. So there's the gateway arising from designations. Designations is generally a term that means the uh, characteristics by which we observe phenomena as being what they are. Like when we look around our rooms, we see different objects, tables, chairs, shrines, you know, all these different objects. And the way that we identify one thing as being different from another is by its characteristics, its color, its shape, its size, and so forth. Those are designations. So it's an odd term, but it's a pretty simple concept that it's pointing to. Then there's the gateway that arises from thorough investigation. And then there's the gateway arising from individual analysis. So let's see how they explain these three gateways. If we apply these to control and said, okay, let's take the example of meditation on selflessness. What would these three gateways mean? First one focuses on the recognition of selflessness, concentrating on its attributes without making use of logical argumentation. So <clears throat> in either meditation or post-meditation, you would bring up the topic of selflessness and you would think, what are he says, what are its attributes? So what are the qualities of selflessness? It's the absence of there being a me, an absence of there being somebody in control, of somebody who's experiencing, somebody who's uh, perceiving, somebody who's knowing. It's an emptiness at the, at the middle of my being. 
It's an aloneness. It's a stillness. You know, however selflessness appears to you, you concentrate on that feeling. And what does selflessness feel like? In my limited understanding of it, whatever that is. Secondly, we use reasoning in order to ascertain what one formally could not understand. What is it that we don't understand about selflessness? We don't understand how can there be, how can there not be a self when it feels like there's a self? So there you go through different types of analysis to understand how does this sense of self arise in, in, a, in an experiential sense based on a perception, based on cognitive experience. How does that self, sense of self arise and undermine that the, uh, the logic of there being a self by using reasoning? And that's the complicated Madhyamaka analysis, which many of us have seen. And um, one, would, one would apply that to the extent one can to this quandary that basically in the first step there's there's uh, both a sense of self and a sense of selflessness and how can that be how does the self and um, and also the main uh, conundrum is how does the self relate to my five skandhas does myself uh, is myself different from my awareness from my mind you know, with the body, it has a quality of being, you know, we think we're separate from our body, but, you know, there's certain things that happen to our body where we feel very much vested in our body as me, much more so with our mind, with our awareness. We feel like our consciousness is me. But when we look at it, we can also see our, our awareness and our consciousness is not me because if we can look at our awareness, then who then who's looking at the awareness? Then it must be separate from the me that's looking at my awareness. Or noticing, is my awareness strong? Is my awareness weak? Is my awareness clouded? And the fact that we can like talk about our awareness in that way means that we have we have this idea that there is a self separate from the awareness. How can that be? So we apply reasoning to how can something be related to other things but not at the same time be related to them, which is the self versus the five skandhas. Are they the same? Are they different? Are they as one a part of the other? And so forth. That's the main analysis. Then it says the third one is when one analysis and now one analyzes excuse me, <laughs> repeatedly as before. It would be a comma would be good here. One analyzes repeatedly, as before, the main the meaning which has been ascertained. So through step number one and two, you've come to a certain under level of understanding, and then you repeat. And this was made famous by Mipam in a text called The Wheel of Analytical Meditation, where he shows how one does these steps and you just repeat them over and over until you become enlightened or until it's time for lunch, whichever comes first. So those are the two schemes so far. Um, 
the first scheme was much more focused on the objects, like it was distinguished by the type of object that one's working with. And the second one was more, more distinguished with uh, sort of the way that one experience, experiences uh, self, very much focused on the self. Well, that's that was the example, but that is the main use of of Vipassana, right? So then, finally, there's a sixfold classification of Vipassana, known as the six investigations. Here, one thoroughly investigates the six aspects of phenomena, which are meaning, things, character, direction, time, and reasoning. This is also a case of Vipassana arising from individual analysis. Where do we see this term, Vipassana, arising from individual analysis? Hmm. Ah, right here. We just had it. What a memory, huh? Amazing. I can remember from one minute to the next. So, uh, the sixfold analysis is an, is an expanded uh, presentation of basically the three gateways. It's a way of applying the three gateways. Now, he's going to explain these six in some detail, and I'm going to skip that for now. And I'm going to go um, first to one more traditional version. And we'll go through the, the three schemes one at a time to the extent that uh, we have time. So I want to jump to page 14. It's from a wonderful book called uh, Moonbeams. It used to be called Moonbeams of Mahamudra. Now it has a fancier name. Uh, by this guy, Mr. Namgyal. So he said the correlation of the Vipassana presented here, and he's in the sort of uh, outer level of Vipassana. In that book, there's there's Sutra Shamatha Vipassana, and then there's Mahamudra Shamatha Vipassana, and he's in the Sutra section. Correlation of the Vipassana presented here with the explanation of the four types of Vipassana such as the differentiation of phenomena found in that sutra is as follows. Here in our tradition, the Mahamudra tradition, our focus on the quantitative aspect of phenomena in the form of percepts and perceivers. Now I know what perceivers are. That's a pretty common term. I think all of us are perceivers. And then I think percepts are what perceivers perceive. Does anyone agree with me? That percepts are what perceivers perceive. Okay, pretty much unanimously, no reaction at all. Doesn't that kind of also make us percepts if others are perceiving us? Yes, you can be everything at once and nothing at all. That's right. <laughs> okay, so the quantitative aspect of the phenomena. So he's talking about the varieties of phenomena in terms of like that twofold scheme that uh, knowledge or wisdom has of being focused on the relative or the absolute. He's talking about the relative. Which are included within the thoughts and appearances of rising as the mind's expressive power. So already he's got a slant 
on the whole thing that you know the world is basically the expression of our minds which is a whole other level of kettle of fish this is the vipassana that differentiates phenomena because by focusing on all phenomena that is the quantitativeness of all noble objects they're differentiated so talking about giving a little bit of information on how to do that first stage of the fourfold vipassana Focus on all things that are perceived or are perceivers as lacking an essence of their own. It's the Vipassana that differentiates thoroughly. So this is focusing on the mode of being of phenomena, which is their emptiness. By focusing on the qualitativeness of knowable objects, they are differentiated. Our discernment of those two, the qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative is the varieties of phenomena, the relative sorry, quantitative, and the qualitative is their emptiness, the ultimate, with an apprehension of their characteristics is the Vipassana that discerns completely. Because discerning course qualitativeness and quantitativeness along with an apprehension of their characteristics is discernment. So he presents these four as sort of a progression, as opposed to the second two being a, a sort of a, a coarse and subtle aspect of the first two probably not earth-shattering to most of you here, that there's this difference. I found it sort of shocking, but I see nobody here as much freaking out. <laughs> okay, it's just me then. Our careful analysis of these two is the Vipassana that analyzes completely because it's the correct analysis of the most subtle aspects. Okay, so uh, he quotes from this text by Asanga that doesn't add much. And then we have uh, his way of presenting the three types of Vipassana, which were the, uh, the three gateways. He says, okay, here the way we discern the objects of Vipassana in, in our tradition, the three gateways, is the Vipassana that arises from characteristics because that only brings to mind conceptual representations as the object of a posture. So uh, if you remember the first gateway was like, what are the basic, what's the basic experience of a, of a topic? And he used selflessness. What is the attributes of selflessness? Cultural sin. Secondly, the way we understand that all such phenomena lack in essence is the Vipassana that arises through the, through, uh, from thorough investigation because it's the attention comprehending an object of understanding that was not previously understood. Using the most convoluted language possible, he's saying, okay, you analyze it more closely, which was similar to Kongshul. The way that we attain and become familiar with the liberation which all phenomena lack in essence is the Vipassana that arises from discernment because by realizing the abiding state of phenomena with our discerning prajna, which is their emptiness, we feel true bliss through liberation and become familiar with that. Very hard to apply his presentation. He quotes the unraveling in the intense sutra, which is basically identical to uh, Kongshul's presentation. Uh, we, the first one is bring a demonic conceptual representation for, for engendering samadhi. The second one, thorough investigation. Here we bring to mind Dharma topics that we didn't understand, not well understood, so that we can understand them. 
cultural sin. We apply logic. We 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 apply reasoning to that which was not understood well. <clears throat> and here the third one is uh, we bring to mind the Dharma topics that were well understood by going through this two-step process beforehand uh, that was directed at them in order that we may feel the bliss of liberation. Okay, so pretty much agreement on those classifications. Said although those classifications are listed in the sutras, such as unraveling the intent, the texts on the stages of meditation, the actual meditation text that came down to him in his time period, which I think was like the 16th century, do not explain explain the way to determine each of them specifically. He's like like us, is sort of like, well, okay, that sounds sort of convoluted. How do we practice that? However, since their key points are contained within the determination of the two absences of self-entity, i.e. selflessness of persons and phenomena, and since that approach is well known in the sutra context in both India and Tibet, those, i.e. the two selflessnesses, absences of self-entity, will be correlated with the Vipassana presented here as, as follows. So this guy is saying that basically it boils down Vipassana boils down to understanding the two egolessnesses, here translated as absences of self-entity, of person and phenomenon. The way the essence of mind is determined is similar to the way the absence of a self and persons is determined in the sutra context. So he's explaining that um, in the in the Mahamudra tradition, and his book is an explanation of the Mahamudra tradition. So this is the tradition from which Trump Rinpoche comes and is teaching from. In that tradition, the focus is on the mind. We're not that concerned with the varieties of phenomena and the emptinesses of self of persons and phenomena. We're, we're focused on the mind. The mind is the root and the source of everything we experience, happiness and sadness, samsara and nirvana. So the Mahamudra tradition cuts to the chase and says, let's just focus on the mind, guys. The way the essence of mind is determined is similar to the way the absence of the self of persons is determined in the sutra context. In the sutra context, the person is considered to be that which holds the continua of the skandhas with awareness. Interesting, plural continuums of skandhas with awareness. The person is considered to be that which holds our body, speech, and mind together with awareness. Belief in the self of persons is that the person, that there's this thing separate from the skandhas called a person that takes itself to be permanent and singular, that thinks of itself as permanent. This is what we do. We think that there's me and that I don't change every second. I'm the same me as I was an hour ago before class and when I was born. It's the same me. That's what me believes. And that there's one me. I don't believe there's many me's. I believe there's one of me. And believes that this me is I and me. Recognition of the absence of a self of persons is to know that to be without any nature. So understanding the, the incorrectness of that experience. Here, what holds itself to be permanent singular believes itself to be I and mine is the mind. 
So we determine the mind to be without any nature. So we just focus on the mind in the Mahamudra tradition. The way the nature of thoughts and appearances are determined is similar to the way that the absence of a self-entity of phenomena is determined in the sutra context. So he's saying that uh, the, the focus in Vipassana is on the two selflessnesses of self and phenomena, or the two absences of self-entity, of persons and phenomena. We work on the emptiness of the self, of the, of the self-entity of persons by focusing on the nature of the mind itself, its awareness, and we focus on the emptiness of phenomena by looking at how thoughts and appearances are experienced in the mind or by the mind. In the sutra system, phenomena refers to skandhas, dhatus, and so forth that are imagined by the self of persons. The self of persons imagines that it has skandhas and dhatus and so forth. We think that we have a body and emotions and sense perceptions, that we, we own them. Belief in a self-entity of phenomena is to believe that those are objectively existent things. We firmly believe that those things that occur in our mind are, are the result of interaction with an external world of real things, truly existent things. Truly existent. What is truly existent? Recognition of the absence of a self-entity of phenomena is to know those to be without any nature. The, the uh, reality of external phenomena is undermined. Here we determine all objectively existent appearances, the mental events imagined by the mind itself and external forms to be without any nature. So he's summing up the, the practice of uh, Vipassana and the Mahamudra tradition. And he's not going into the reasonings for why there's, uh, why phenomena um, are not truly existent external phenomena. But he's just sort of explaining the approach. And then this interesting nuance, he says, uh, despite these similarities, the sequence of how the nature of objects and perceiving subjects are determined is different. It's a different order in the in how we work on the emptiness of self and persons, uh, self and phenomena rather. And the sutra is taught that without first determining the nature of objects which are perceived. So without first understanding the the emptiness of phenomena, we can't understand the emptiness of the mind of the person. And he gives these two quotes. First, we have to invalidate the object in order to eliminate this, this belief in objects. When you see that the object has no self-entity, the seed of existence is, is thereby destroyed. Seed of existence is belief in the self of persons. Here it is thought that, that approaching it that way makes determining the nature of the perceiving mind later on much harder. So in, a, in the Mahamudra tradition, they, they feel that if you focus initially on the emptiness of phenomena, it makes the, the understanding of the emptiness of self harder. Whereas determining the, the emptiness of the mind first makes it easier to determine the emptiness of objects. 
then it will be as if the objects are self-liberated. So uh, it's just like the way to cut down a tree. Either you can cut it at the root, as in the Mahamudra tradition, cut the root of the mind, and then the branches wither. Or you can start from the outer edges of the branches and cut gradually inward, which is the sutra approach. Anyway, a little glimpse of uh, the Mahamudra tradition. And uh, let's take a peek at our Trump Rinpoche's presentation of the four. See how he presents these these four main aspects of uh, Vipassana. You may notice that I skip over Trungu's Rinpoche's presentation pretty much completely. Uh, I think it's uh, included in others quite well, but he gives a very, very clear, uh, straightforward explanation of everything. So I think it's very helpful for uh, if you're encountering this sort of material for the first time, stronger Rinpoche's presentations are very helpful. Rinpoche says, okay, there's these four categories of Vipassana. So the first one is to be able to discriminate dharmas, and he explains what that is. Um, let's see, we're uh, working on the varieties, separating the varieties of phenomena, separating dharmas. There's a lot to learn. We're not overwhelmed. We're willing to jump into the great ocean of dharmas, which is, uh, you know, basically the truth of it is we're, we're willing to jump into the ocean of lists, which is what Buddhism is obsessed with endless lists. When you develop awareness, you're aware of all the things that are happening in your life and your world, and you're not overwhelmed with them. And he, he talks in, a, in another place as uh, saying that when you're focused on experience from a mindfulness point of view, there's a tendency to get overwhelmed by the intensity of experience or the multiplicity of experience if you don't have the perspective that awareness provides. When you first begin to experience Vipassana awareness, an interesting presentation of sort of like a beginner's approach uh, experientially to Vipassana, you might be completely shocked. It's like putting on your first pair of glasses. That's pretty dramatic. Suddenly you can see around you. You realize how many things you've missed. However, when you begin to see clearly, you also realize how many things, how many things are irritating. So I prefer to take off your glasses or throw them away. You know, when you see really clearly, like who you are and what what world you've created, it's a little bit upsetting. Um, you don't really want to perceive reality that clearly so nakedly you don't want to go all the way so you back off and that turning away is due to a lack of awareness and mindfulness the ignorance of bliss approach in contrast the pashna is a natural process of brightening yourself up and seeing things clearly implies uh, implied is that we're willing we have the willingness the trust faith confidence daring bravery to go into that suddenly revealed clarity of experience of who we are, what we really are. 
you're able to do so because you've developed mindfulness and they begin to work together. Mindfulness and awareness, they're inseparable. The second category, fully able to separate. So it's a further deepening of this experience. At this stage, having caught a glimpse of phenomenal objects, not only are you not startled by how detailed they are, but you actually want to investigate them. So he doesn't come out and say it, but uh, he's implying that the details is the relatives, the varieties of phenomena. We've been through that in step one. And now we want to investigate how they are, the mode of their being, their ultimate nature. You become more daring in relating to your world. And if you have a, a subconscious gossip, fantastic private pornographic show in your mind, you're shocked. But then you want to like figure out where is it coming from? So you don't just get shocked and close the door on having seen the crudeness of your mind. But you feel out what's happening, you experience it. You do this in order not to fulfill your lust. So, you're, so you're, it's not like you're uh, going further into the distraction of whatever has arisen. But you want to find out how it comes to be. What are they like? Why is my mind doing this? What is the texture? Solid, transitory, are they real or empty? Whatever occurs, you investigate that. Somebody says, fuck you. Why? What was going on there? So constantly being curious, inquisitive, inquisitiveness, deepening level of inquisitiveness is the characteristic of Vipassana. You're, you're looking at dharmas directly and finding out how they arise, dwell, and disappear in your life and in your mind. The third category is completely comprehending. So um, you experiencing thoughts of a very crude nature, experience bigs up, ups and downs, which are very this or that. Whether they occur in meditation or after, you could exert your awareness on them. This is not the same as being mindful. In mindfulness, you're just seeing thoughts and labeling them, thinking here there's more of a general awareness of the presence of thoughts, crude or not, with an awareness of the atmosphere created by your crude thought process. And, it, and he's focusing on the crude level of thoughts because this is where it begins, the, the uh, ability to uh, completely comprehend them with an awareness of the atmosphere created by the crude thought process, you're able to see thoughts one by one rather than suddenly being hit by a bunch of thoughts and overwhelmed by them. Instead of being overwhelmed, you, uh, you're not overwhelmed. You're able to dissect your emotions, separate them one from another. For instance, when there's a big, uh, a lot of aggression arises, you look at your thoughts, you dissect them. How do they arise? How do they dwell? How do they disappear? That's the standard phrase for Vipassana practices. How does it arise, dwell, and disappear? And then he says, even if they do not disappear, and he's acknowledging that for many of us, when we look at our thoughts, they don't immediately disappear. It feels like they're still there. Thoughts are very sticky. And he's, then he's saying, basically saying that, um, well, really, the initial thought has disappeared, and you're now seeing subsequent trains of thought 
that are similar to that initial one. But thoughts really are instantaneous. So the first flash has disappeared, and now you have a chance to see the second flash coming into your state of mind, which might seem like it's a continuation of the first, but they're really separate. And he talks about it's pterodactyl. Maybe we should change this to the 21st century. Anyway, there's a sense of decency about relating with our experience. Even when there's this crudeness that's going on, you don't freak out, but you just see what's ever going on. Whatever is going on, dissect it with your Vipassana. And this is made possible only because you have stability and shamatha. He says, when you've worked with shamatha thoroughly, your mind is like Plato. Now, I don't know how many of you played with Plato. Did any of you play with Plato when you were kids? You know, so Plato, I think, has like two qualities. One is that it's like mushy and like, you know, you can change it and morph it into whatever. But the other quality is it bounces, like you make it into a ball and it like bounces around, right? I think he's talking about the mushy, uh, the, the mushy quality. That mind is, is uh, flexible, supple, you know, that idea of suppleness, right? Completely investigating. Uh, here we see thoughts as minute completely and investigating does not refer to obvious thoughts that are easy to comprehend but to the small meaningless insignificant flickers of thought that occur so there's levels of thoughts in our mind there's the crude thoughts there's at least these two levels and other presentations uh, identify three levels of agitation thought is called agitation usually um, the moving of the mind but there's this lower level that's just a murmur. And uh, I think all of us uh, don't recognize the murmur for quite a long time, go through a period where it feels like we're stable, but there's this murmuring going on. And you have to be raise your energy and be very precise and dive in deeper to see the murmuring. And he describes this process of small awareness. It looks as if one subconscious gossip is chasing another subconscious gossip. It's this interesting experience in Vipassana of, of like seeing one part of your mind looking after the other part of your mind. In this fourth category of Vipassana, the chaser, so to speak, has awareness. What's being chased? could be insignificant, meaningless, but we're trying to make sure that nothing gets away. We have to cover the whole ground completely. Um, so, you, so this is, uh, it's necessary to be very tidy, precise, and you investigate where those small thoughts come from. So looking very precisely into our mind. Um, and then let's look briefly at the six categories, the six discoveries. Whatever is knowable in the world, either the relative or transcendent nature can be understood and experienced by means of Vipassana. Relative, the varieties of experience or the transcendent motive, their mode of being can be understood and experienced by Vipassana. It leads to a complete understanding of the knowable. The knowable is a uh, sort of handy way of referring to everything. 
because uh, everything necessarily only includes everything that is knowable. Everything that's not knowable, we don't know about it, so we can't include it. It's like thinking about things you know nothing about. It doesn't last very long. This doesn't mean you become a great scholar, but you have an attitude and approach from practicing Vipassana that opens your way of thinking so that obstacles to learning are no longer uh, insurmountable. There are several attributes of the Vipassana experience based on the intellectual sharpness developed rather than simply on the meditative experience. So these are sort of the result or the after effects of the meditative experience. These attributes develop out of the four categories and uh, he's going to call them discoveries as opposed to their, their traditional called searches or investigations. Uh, but the point he's making is that Understanding these six attributes is really the result of understanding the nature of the self and the world, the varieties and the mode of being. So we gain an understanding of the way that the world works, the way phenomena exist. So I'm not going to go through all of these. Uh, he goes through some detail. And if you compare his version to Kongshul's version, there's, there are interesting nuances uh, between the way he presents them. He has a very interesting slant on some of them. That's quite different. Uh, but you'll see that there's a lot of detail in these six objects, nature of perception, sides, past the three times, um, insider logic, reasoning. So that's about it for tonight. Maybe I'll, I'll pause there, see if you guys have any comments or suggestions about either the varieties of phenomena or their way of abiding. Their mode of being. Do you guys do this in your Vipassana? Have you come to understand the meaning of words? Do you think about the meaning of words differently? Like, what do these words mean? What are these jumble of letters and sounds? What are they getting at? What is time? Now, how do things go from the past to the present and the future? The more important ones uh, are the uh, specifically and generally character characterized aspects of phenomena. What is a concept? What's the difference between a concept and a um, a dharma, so to speak? A dharma yeah. is a specifically characterized phenomena that can be experienced with our uh, mind. Uh, well, uh, Henrietta. I, I just wanted to say I found uh, his that um, paragraph where he goes into the explanation or the example of pain was was very interesting. It was a nice way to see how to apply it because pain is something we you know is especially physical pain is yeah that's right i forgot to do that i was going to go through uh, at the end he has how to apply 
I yes. thought that was interesting. This is the application. Where is that? It's page 15, the bottom. Right. You can apply these to anything in your life, and it, gives, it goes through pain. Analyze it in all these different ways. Yeah, so focus on that. If you had a hard time getting through the whole thing, go focus on this little uh, section at the end. On the whole, we're studying Dharma so we know how to handle our lives. We don't just naively go along with everything, or for that matter, do we become overly paranoid. Instead, we have an understanding of balance, how to handle life. We understand cause and effect. We understand time. We understand directionality. We understand cause and effect. We understand logic. We don't regard our life as though we're constantly being cheated. Whether we're being cheated or not, if we extend ourselves too far, indulge ourselves, we will be cut short. We're, we're uh, receptive to feedback from the phenomenal world. If we're overly sensitive, some accommodation will be provided. You know, if initially we're like really uh, thin, thin-skinned through Vipassana practice, we begin to understand why things happen and we don't take them as, as personal. That is how the world works according to the Vipassana vision of discriminator awareness wisdom, which, by the way, comes from relaxing your mind. You know, so if you didn't find all these categories relaxing, then there's always relaxing. <laughs> so I have to say, Derek, I did find it flummoxing that uh, he talks about the passion of being something that comes toward you. You don't have to run after it. And then there's all this elaborate uh, parsing and analyzing that feels very active. Uh, and so, yeah, relaxing into it is uh, feels challenging. That's great. Thank you so much for for. Uh, stating that so clearly and uh, with such feeling. Yeah, you know, it's like he's, he's talking about two different practices. You know, and, and it really is. He's talking about this sort of transitional practice of just relaxing and developing open awareness, extending the shamatha quality of knowing what's going on and just, just really extending that through relaxed alertness. And then from that, we begin to understand the, the subtleties of our experience in our world. And uh, ideally, it comes from a point of view of that complete relaxation. If it doesn't come from that, that initial step of extending, extending the knowing quality of shamatha in a relaxed way, that it gets all caught up in intellectualism. And, you know, we get all flustered and like thinking that, you know, things are real and I got to understand this thing and that thing and so forth. But so he's really emphasizing the the uh, relaxed version of Vipassana so that, uh, you know, us Westerners, I think, are uh, compared to Easterners are famous for getting like very complicated and intellectual. So he's constantly trying to... Uh, Make it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it flat. Yeah. 
flattening things out. And then he provides some of the real detail and he flattens, calms it down, settles it. And then he presents some more of the detail. But it's funny, you know, at the beginning, uh, and at various places, he says, I'm going to present, you know, the, the practice tradition of Vipassana that's non-analytical. And then he goes through all these very analytical schemes. <laughs> so, uh, to some to some extent, the way he presents them compared to the way other traditions present them, his version is very non-analytical compared to other traditions. They'll present these these topics in you know immense detail, very analytical. So, to some extent, it's a matter of comparison. Uh, to some extent, it's a it's a matter of approach, you know, approaching the complexity from that relaxed place. And then there's also this very subtle difference in traditions where, um, you know, we looked at the three gateways where you you try to understand what emptiness is without a lot of detail, and you then you bring up the analysis and you go through the reasoning of why there's this not a self or why things are empty, and then you you come to the point of some understanding and then you repeat that process again. And um, there's a difference in various traditions where one tradition says uh, you have to continue doing that that analysis to make it Vipassana. If you stop doing the analysis of things as being empty or selfless, then it's no longer Vipassana and you've shifted back into a shamatha experience. And then another, there's another tradition that says once you've understood the meaning of the analysis, that you can't have a self that's both separate from the skandhas and part of the skandhas. You know, that's the conundrum, is that we have this sense of a self that on the one hand is separate from our body, speech, and mind, but on the other hand is the same as them. And that's totally illogical. And when you've understood that illogical quality, and understood here means to the point of complete relaxation of all mental fabrication. You don't need to continue that analysis in meditation. You can just rest in that experience of what we call not finding an answer, not finding the way that something could exist as two opposing ways. Guess which tradition ours is? <laughs> that one. <laughs> Right, you know, once you understood the meaning, you don't need to com- keep completing the analysis in meditation or in vipassana. You might, you might, once your once your settledness disperses, you might go back to shamatha and then bring up the the contemplation of like what is the feeling of self and selflessness, and then go through the analysis, come to a realization, and then rest and go through that. But Cynthia, one last. And then we'll end. Well, just related to what you're just saying, I, I would say, though, that from a path point of view, even if one hasn't fully understood that, one can still go to the resting state. When you were saying it, it made it sound like you have to have fully understood that. And But in reality, the way we practice it, we include resting and you have any glimpse or just, a, you know, some insight. You don't have to have the full-blown uh, total insight. Otherwise, we would never get to that resting, right? Well, that's an interesting comment because on the one hand, 
yeah, there's like so, so much subtlety to the understanding. And so if you, if you didn't just at some point, you know, cut to the chase, you could go on endlessly with the analysis. But the, the result of the analysis is non-finding. And, uh, once you know that, you can sort of experience the non-finding through putting contradictory propositions next to each other. You can sort of experience that in a in a guttural sense quite easily. You know, how is it that I feel like I'm here, and yet when I bang my foot, it feels like my foot? What's going on? Where's myself? You know, and when they cut my hair, I don't, you know, myself doesn't hurt. You know, things like that. So let us uh, conclude. Do our chanting. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thank Have you very day. much. Hope Thank I didn't you, put Jared. you to sleep with my monotonous voice. Yeah, yeah. Next week gets a little, uh, next couple of weeks get, it gets more and more interesting as like actually how to do Vipassana. So that's cool. Thank you. Have a, be well. Thanks, Derek. Good Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.